you all very much. Does everybody have an outline for tonight? If you do not, raise your hand. We'll be happy to get you one. We have a couple back here. It's so good to uh, see you all tonight. If you uh, have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 4. We'll be there in just a moment. Let me get my PowerPoint going here. One second. At Harvest, our philosophy of preaching and teaching the Bible is what you might call expository preaching. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, we love to do this on Sunday mornings. Um, It gives us an opportunity to preach through the Bible, and the question is, what does the Bible say uh, right here in this passage? What does this passage say is the question. Every week when we sit down to work through a passage before preaching it, my goal is to explain and to Um, give you some tools and help you see how this passage of of Scripture applies to your life. But occasionally it's important also that we flip the question around and say, what does the Bible say about this topic? What does the Bible say about a specific thing? And so today we're going to be looking at uh, a series I'm starting for the next few weeks about biblical giving. What does the Bible say about giving? When we look at what God has for us to do in our future, it's important for us to consider how we as Christians should approach every aspect and every area of our lives. We need to think about how God's Word interacts and deals with every aspect of our life, including our personal finances and how we give, because the Scripture has authority related to every area of our lives. Now, here's the awesome thing. Being at Harvest, I've been at Harvest now uh, on staff since 2009, and I've been a part of the church for a very long time. My dad was the pastor here at Harvest for over 20 years. And the blessing of being at our church is that uh, because of uh, several factors. We've had very generous giving units in our church. We've had very uh, generous offerings, and we've had very conservative um, uh, financial planning. We've been very careful. It has been a blessing to never have to beg for money. I have heard many people ta- talk about going to churches where people get up, and week after week, the pastor will, will beg for money because the church is struggling financially. Our needs, our budget needs have always been met, but just because our needs have been met does not mean that we have an, a healthy view of our personal finances. It doesn't mean we have a healthy view of our church finances. We need to make sure we're confronting our finances and our giving and everything we have with God's Word. I'm reminded of a, a, a someone I knew. I'm not going to say who this was. I'm reminded of someone I knew um, who in, in high school uh, used to say to other people, I don't know why it is so difficult for people to stay in shape. It's so easy. And then this person got older, and they realized how difficult it was to stay in shape because this person never learned how to exercise as a young person because they were naturally gifted. And then as they got older, they struggled. They struggled mightily because they never exercised. And as they struggled, they never quite got a grasp on that because they did not learn. Just because they were gifted as younger, I feel like us, we are a gifted church in a sense. We have been gifted so many good things. I just don't want us to become spiritually lazy and thinking we've got everything figured out because we don't have any problems related to our budget, related to our financial planning. We have never, uh, since I've been here, struggled financially as a church, but this doesn't mean that we're healthy, and so we need to consider what God would have us do. I have just a few things here as our introduction. I want us to ask some questions as we dive into this, then we'll pray and ask for God's blessing on, on the service. Really, how should we think about what God has given us? How should we think about what God has? What truths does the Bible teach us about possessions and our relationship to our possessions? We ought to think about this. We ought to consider these things. This is very important for us. And how does our thinking about possessions need to change to align with God's Word? This is something we all ought to consider. Am I thinking the right way? Or am I thinking the wrong way? It's important for us always to be evaluating 
our thinking. Secondly, what should we do with what God has given us? What should we think about what God has given us? What should we do? What commands has God's Word given us related to our physical possessions? Let's ask for God's blessing as we dive into these passages today. Father, we ask for your grace and your wisdom as we look at what your Word has to say about our possessions. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to, to steward these things for you. And I ask for your grace as we look at these things and let us have open hearts. And what I pray that uh, what I present from your word would be your word and that it would not be tainted by our thoughts or by our uh, perspective, but Lord, that we would understand your perspective on what we've been, what we have received from you. We pray your blessing on the service tonight. We thank you for the privilege of gathering. We thank you for the wonderful night. It's a wonderful day it's been in your house. We pray as we as we look at your word once more, that our hearts would be ready to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The model for New Testament biblical giving is the model of stewardship. Now, what does the word stewardship involve? Steward is a verb, and we, if we talk about stewarding something, we're talking about managing something, to manage or to administrate something. We're talking about management. And most of our Bible understanding of stewardship comes from the New Testament word uh, for stewardship was economia. And economia has the idea of a household. It's where we get our word economy in English. Uh, the hoikos, or the house, is the basis for this hoikonomia word. And really, when it often speaks about management or speaks about uh, stewardship, we're talking about the management of a house. Often in uh, Bible times, stewardship of a house was done by a slave or done by a servant in the house. And the, and the picture is the steward works within the house for the benefit of the master in order to do the work of the master and to do his delegated work. Um, I found this definition of stewardship. Stewardship has been defined as the administration of the material and spiritual possessions entrusted to men by God for the advancement of his kingdom. And I believe that a biblical understanding of stewardship rests on four pillars. One, that God is the owner of everything. Number two, that man is a trustee or he is the one entrusted with what God has given. Number three, that tithes and offerings should be given in acknowledgement of God's ownership, an acknowledgement of our stewardship. And number four, what it remains should be used for God's glory and for man's good. Giving should be always free. Giving should always be voluntary, but needs to rest on these four pillars. That's from a wonderful article I read called The Responsibility of the Church in Stewardship. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. Number one, everything we have comes from God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to notice first, as you look at everything we have comes from God, that every spiritual gift we have comes from God. Ephesians 4, let's read some verses together. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which we were called. Notice right off the bat, he says, you were called and you're called to walk worthy. How are we to do this? Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He talks about the unity of the church, the, the unity that binds the church together, that we are one faith. We are not divided amongst the church. We are, we are one church. We should be united in Him. But then look at verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace or a gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Verse 8, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he did what? And he gave gifts to men. God has given you spiritual gifts. And because we're called to walk worthy of this calling, there is an implication that because God has given us these gifts, we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called to use these gifts for His glory. And this involves the spiritual gifts that you have been given. You are to exercise your spiritual gifts that God has given you because every spiritual gift you have comes from God the Father. Look at verse 11. Skip down with me to verse 11. You'll notice he says, and he gave, he himself, Christ, gave, and notice he lists out the op- some of the officers or some of the people in the church. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give these gifts in the church? What are they to do? Look at this next verse, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has equipped our church with people in order to equip you to do the work of the ministry so that the church might be built up and edified. Every spiritual gift comes from God. It is from God. It's directed by God, and we are responsible to Him how we use that gift. That's why it's wrong when people shun their spiritual gifts and don't use them in church. Every spiritual gift is given by God. Our spiritual gifts are meant to be used for the maturing of the church and for the service of the church. Every spiritual gift comes from God. Let's go now to, uh, if you would, to James 1. We just were there uh, this morning, but I want you to notice that every material gift comes from God. James chapter 1. In fact, why don't you actually turn to Matthew 6? I'll just quote James 1 to you because that's a familiar passage we've already looked at a couple times um, in the past couple weeks. But Matthew 6 is where I want you to turn in your Bible. And in James, we studied this on Sundays, where he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from, from above, from God, and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Everything we need is from God. God has given us every good and perfect gift. And God actually tells us because He's given us good things, we ought not to worry about material things because God has power to provide what you need. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31. Matthew 6, 31, it says, Therefore, do not worry. And if you, if you go back, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, context to this, but we're going to start in verse 34. He says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? This is, these are the things that you, most people would say you ought to worry about. I mean, it's what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, the necessities of life, food, water, clothing, shelter. He says, don't worry about these things, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows you need these things, verse 32. Look at verse 33. What are we supposed to do first? Every material gift comes from God. God has given us these things. God has clothed the lilies of the field. God will clothe you. Look at verse 33. But seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things referring to? The physical needs we have. Not, not, the, not the luxury items, but the physical needs we have will be added to us, will be given to us. That's why he says in verse 34, once again, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. A few points. Number one, don't worry. God knows you have these needs. God knows your needs, so you need to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And therefore, we don't need to worry about tomorrow. Stay concerned with 
today. Every material gift comes from God, therefore we don't need to worry. And if you'll go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like to just note that material things cannot provide ultimate fulfillment. I love the book of Ecclesiastes, and maybe perhaps one of these days I'll preach through uh, this book. Um, I I know Pastor Drew has taught through it or preached through it um, at one point as well. But in the Old Testament, if I can find it, it's a tiny little book here. Here it is. Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter uh, 2, please. We'll look at chapter 2 first. We have in the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon pursuing pleasure and wealth. And he goes, by, he goes through his life, and he describes his life and how he pursued all these things. And if you look at verse 4, he says, Ecclesiastes 2, 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants, had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks and all who were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the son of men, the musical instruments, of all kinds. He is not leaving any stone unturned. He is going around collecting all the pleasures of life, including uh, the, the things that delight the eyes, the things that delight the ear, the things that delight the taste. Look at verse 9. He says, so I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. He, he grew in power. My wisdom remained within me, or remained with me. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my labor. Is, is there some joy that comes from work? Absolutely. Is there, is there a, an understanding that, that God has given these gifts to us, that as we work and we benefit and we gain, that is a pleasurable thing? Absolutely. But we make the mistake when we assume or when we think that we can accumulate enough material things to actually satisfy our hearts. We, we, we can find joy in, in finding success short-term, but we cannot place an undue burden on these things to provide meaning for our lives. They will provide some help to us, absolutely. It's better to have than not have, but you cannot place the burden of meaning on them. Because if you look, look at verse 11, he says, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done. He takes a step back, and I want you to stop for a moment. When God created the world, he took a step back, per se. He looked on all the things which he had done, and what did he say? Behold, it is very good. God saw his work, and it was very good. I want you to notice Solomon's response. I looked at all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor which I had toiled, and indeed it was all what? Vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Let me explain what vanity is. Vanity does not mean meaningless. There's a, there's a bad translation. Some of our English translations, we use the word meaningless, and that's not a good translation of this word. It's not that he's saying there's no meaning there. The idea of, of, of hevel is the Hebrew word. Hevel or, or um, uh, vanity is this idea of vapor. Uh, now, we don't have very many cold days in South Carolina, but right around this time of year, we start to get a little crisp of mornings, and you might walk out first thing in the morning, and as you walk outside, you breathe, and there's that, that vapor of your breath that you see, and that, that vapor of breath that is there, and then it's gone um, is exactly what he's talking about here. There is a, it just, it's there, and then it's gone. Life is like that. It, it's so fast. It's gone in a moment. There's no substance to it. It, it disappears before you're aware it's even gone. It, it is so quick and so quick to leave. And that's what he's saying, that there is a vaporishness, if I can use that word, 
to these things. There's no substance there. There is, of course, beauty, and there is, of course, uh, benefit, but he says, all was vaporishness and grasping for the wind. What a picture. To, to try to hold on to something, and it just slips through your fingers. No matter how hard you try to hold on to wind, you cannot grab it. It's impossible. The things which are in our life cannot provide ultimate fulfillment. Go to chapter 5. Skip a page or two, and you'll see in chapter 5, he points out that even gain and honor cannot provide lasting satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with enjoying material things of the earth, but we must take them for what they are. They are material things, and we cannot overburden them with the responsibilities they cannot possibly meet. Look at verse 10. It says, He who loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Verse 14, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. He shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This is also a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness. He has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Notice that if you try to accumulate things to yourself, you will find these things cannot satisfy. And it's important for us to keep that in mind in our culture today that is constantly obsessed with gathering material things to our possessions. We need to recognize that everything we have comes from God, and we ought to keep it for what it is. Recognize material things for what they are. They are tools to be used for God's glory and for man's good. They are not to find meaning in our material possessions. Do not, you cannot find meaning in your material possessions. No matter how many commercials you watch, if you buy that new thing, that new car, it will not make you a new person, right? If you buy that new outfit, it will not make you a new person. It will not satisfy your heart. I want to also point to the fact, number two, if you would look with me, God expects us to use what he has for his glory. Look at Luke 19. We have two parables I want to talk about today. Luke 19. Thank you for your patience with me tonight. We'll be looking at a lot of Scripture, and I hope that this is helpful to you. The first parable will be Luke 19, a familiar passage, but I hope you'll pay special attention to it. Luke 19, starting in verse 11, will teach us this fact, that we must do His work while He is away. Verse 11 tells us, Now as they heard these things, He, Jesus, spoke another parable, because He was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's a fascinating little piece of information that helps us understand the context for which the parable goes forth. That the people were expecting Jesus to bring the kingdom right then and there. So he tells them this parable. Therefore, he said, verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. 
So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minus, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Look at verse 13. I want you to notice that each one has been given responsibility. There is a delegation, uh, delegated responsibility in the king's absence. I don't know if I actually put, I think I forgot to put, I'm sorry, let me give you the blanks there. Delegated responsibility in the king's absence. Delegated responsibility in the king's absence. Looks verse 13, he says, each one was given a responsibility. Each of the 10 people was gathered and said, uh, do business till I come. Notice they were each given resources. They were given responsibility. They were each given resources. He gave them all uh, 10 minus. These are financial uh, uh, resources. And the fascinating thing is there, each one is surrounded by a kind of revolution. We have in verse 14 that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. There's a problem that happens. But look at verse 15. So it was when he returned... Having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had been given his money to be called to him that they may know how every man had gained by his trading. Look at verse 15. We see the accounting of gains by the faithful. So he came the first and said, Master, your mina has earned ten minus. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. Have authority over ten cities. Verse 18, the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minus. Likewise, he said, you also be over five city. I want you to notice that he recognized this. These men recognized who owned the resources. He said, Master, look at verse 16. Your mina has earned ten minas. They didn't say mine. They said yours. It was delegated to them, and they worked using that mina. They were faithful in working the resources, and so they received commendation for their faithfulness. They received, he said, good job for your work. Well done, good servant. He received commendation and he received compensation. He said, you now will be a ruler over these cities because he had come with these cities. He had received that city uh, as uh, he had received those cities to reign. Notice the faithfulness here of these men. They all received one mina, and yet these all men had different abilities. Some had ten, and some had five. But there was also a counting of loss by the lazy. Look at verse 20. Then came another saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said, well, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Notice the lazy servant, what he does. He makes excuses. He makes excuses. He says, I, I, I know who you are, and I was scared. That's why I hid it in a handkerchief. I didn't know. I didn't want to lose it. And, and the servant's excuses in verse 21 show us his lack of trust, his lack of trust in, in the system, his lack of trust in everything. He, he's fearful, and so he hides, and he chooses rather than to exercise the use of his resources he has been given, he has not do the business. The man says, do business until I come back. He doesn't do it. He's afraid he might lose, so he hides, and he doesn't do it. He thinks, better to do nothing than to lose. But this is wrong thinking. In fact, the servant's excuse reveals his dishonest heart. Look at verse 22. Out of your own mouth, I will judge you. He says, you knew I was this austere man, and why didn't you just put it in the bank? 
Why didn't you do the minimal amount of work? But he was lazy, and rather than, rather than working or even putting it in the bank, he hides it out of fear and out of laziness. And a lot of Christians are this way with their spiritual gifts. They think, well, better not to do anything and be embarrassed than to try. Because if I try, I don't know, they might actually ask me to do more. <laughs> and then I might get stuck working in the nursery every other week. The horror People think, I cannot, I cannot show, I have to keep everything close to the vest. But notice verse 24, the, the, the word to this lazy man is not good. He says he will be judged. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. There's a lot, I guess we could say, in this passage, but the main point I want you to make from this passage, the main point of Jesus's story is that as the master goes away, he entrusts his people with his treasure for them to do business, and they must do business while he is gone. And when he comes back, he will hold them accountable for how they do their business. And friends, as we, we must do the work while he is away. He is not here now, but we must do the work while he is away. And secondly, we must do the work while we are able. I, I love this next chapter. Go back a couple chapters to Luke 16. And this parable boggles the mind. Sometimes, it, I mean, has, it, I've read many commentaries on this passage. And for a lot of folks, myself included, this is a very challenging passage. But I think it fits exactly where, uh, what we're talking about tonight in a very specific way. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. The theme of this, of this verse or of this um, passage is that God expects us to use our current circumstances and gifts while we can to secure heavenly future eternal blessings. Let's look at the parable in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. And the word steward there, we've already talked about. What is a steward? What does a steward do? He manages. So this man is a steward of a rich man, and he has been, uh, and we'll talk about what he's done, but he has been squandering his goods. Look at verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For a master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down, and write fifty. He said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write eighty. The, the story here, just to be clear what's going on, is the master, as he calls his, serv- his, his, his um, steward in, he says, I've heard that you've been dishonest. Make your accounts. Settle up the books. You're going to be fired. Now, the key word is you're going to be fired. He hasn't actually been fired yet. He has not yet been let loose of his responsibility. He still has the responsibility for a little time. So as he's sitting there, he thinks to himself, the steward is looking at his, his things, and he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be here much longer. 
how can I set myself up so I don't have to beg on the side of the road? And I'm, I, I love this phrase, I'm, I cannot dig. I don't know if he's, he's unable to dig. More likely, he, he, he's too embarrassed to be digging on the side of the road, or maybe his hands are too soft. He's, he's, he's done business all his whole life, and he can't imagine the idea of backbreaking work. Or maybe he's too old. We don't know. But he says, I can't dig. I can't beg. What am I going to do to set myself up? And then in the midway through that sentence, if you look at that phrase again in verse 4, midway through it, he, he kind of has like a, a light bulb moment. He says, I know what I will do. I have resolved what to do. Notice the reason. For when I am put out of stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. Who's the they? The, the, the other people. Yeah, he's going to be put out of house, so he needs somebody to like him. He needs somebody to house him. So what does he do? He says, I know what I will do. I will get my books out. And look, here's a guy who owes a lot of money to my boss. I will make him my friend. So he calls him in. He says, how much do you owe the master? He says, I owe 100 measures of oil. He says, I'm going to give you a discount right now, 50%. No problem. The guy cuts the, cuts the bill and gives it to him. And he, and he, he says, we're done. We're cleared out. We cleared out the, the, um, the debt at 50% discount. That's pretty good. The next one, he says, um, how much do you owe? He says, I, uh, I owe um, uh, 100 measures of wheat. Take your bill, write 80. Hey, 20% discount. I'll take that. And so he, he goes and he, he deals with his, the debtors from his master while he still has that authority to do so, and he cuts deals with them so that they think, man, this guy is pretty great. I like this guy. Look at verse 8. Here's the teaching of the parable. He says, so the master commanded the unjust steward, commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Now, it's unclear here whether the person is the master um, of the servant or Jesus himself who is, who is commending the steward. The, the word used for master is the word for Lord. So it, it just as easily could read in your Bible, the Lord commended the unjust steward. And that's how I take it. I think Jesus is speaking about this unjust steward and he's commending him. And what's to be commended here? What's to be praised here? This is what boggles a lot of people's minds because most of us would have a problem. We'd say, wait a second, didn't he effectively steal from his boss? Didn't he cheat his boss out of his money? Then Jesus elaborates. Look at the next verse, verse 8. He says, The sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The worldly people are, are, are scheming, and they have a way of working the system. Keep that in mind, the idea of working the system. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, Jesus' teaching, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail they may receive you into an everlasting home. Okay, what is being taught here? What is he saying? He says, you know, the sons of darkness, the sons of this world, think a certain way. They're very crafty. And he says, normally the, the, the spiritual people, the people of the, of the light don't necessarily think that way. But here is what Jesus' parable, here's the turn he makes. Here's what you need to do, believers, he says. Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, by that mammon of unrighteousness, that, that money that is unrighteous. So when it fails, that's the money. When the money fails, the friends will receive you into an everlasting home. Is he encouraging you to go out and cheat your boss? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that the application, look at verse 9, in fact, let's work, let's work backwards and then we'll, we'll, we'll catch all this. He says, as he says, make, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Who is the steward in this story supposed to represent? Who do you think the steward is supposed to represent? It's supposed to represent us. 
We are supposed to emulate the steward's uh, things. We're supposed to be more like him. We're supposed to be more like the steward. So who's the rich man? And here's where you have to think. Who is the rich man who the steward is working for? And I think uh, this is where you have to hang on with me because I think a lot of people assume, well, the rich man or the man is always God. That's not what's being talked here. That's not what's being taught here at all. In fact, I believe it's the opposite. I believe the rich man in this place accounts for the world system and perhaps even Satan himself. He is the ruler of the prince of the ruler of this era, or he's the, the prince uh, of, this, of this world we live in. He's the, he's the one who is in charge of this world. So if, just hang on with me, it, what's the call for accounting? When, when the boss calls the steward to come in and says, your time is up, go settle your things, what is that? What is going on there? What's the picture? I believe that moment is the idea of conversion, when we realize as saved children of God, we are no longer in the service to the prince of the power of the air. We've been informed our time on this earth is coming to an end, and the goal now, get this, the goal of a Christian is no longer to satisfy the boss under which we live, it is to set ourselves up for the future. And, and, and living in this world, his goal, the man's goal, was no longer to make his current boss happy as much as it was to make, after he was fired from his job, to make the next people happy with him. So if we go back and look at this, we notice that the manager is aware his time of employment is coming to a close. He's going to be without a job. And as Christians, we're aware that our time here on earth is limited. We have a limited time to use the resources God has given us. The manager recognized that his well-being, his, his post-employment well-being depended not on his current boss, but on the future he would build. And as a Christian, if you invest all your time and all your resources in things that will pay off under this master, then you're missing the real blessing. Because, because your well-being post-employment depends on your future boss, who is the Lord. Does that make sense? If we keep going. The manager used his current situation to inf- improve his future situation. While he had the opportunity, he cut deals that would disadvantage himself and his current boss in the short run so he'd have long-term benefits. As Christians, we should use our current situation to improve our future situation. That's the whole point Jesus is making here. He used the authority he had while he was, he was there, while he had the authority to use the goods of the world. He, while we have the authority to use the goods of this world, we have to use them for God's glory. And this is the key. We have to use our temporal blessings Here's our, here's our blanks. I'm sorry. Our time here is limited. That's number one. And the manager used his current situation to improve his future situation. Your time is coming to a close. There will be a day when you will no longer have access to the funds in which, that which you have in your bank account right now. That's, you, your management of this world, of your time here on this earth, is coming to a close. It's just a matter of how long. Is it going to be five years? Is it going to be 50 years? Is it going to be five weeks? We don't know how long. God has said, get your things together and set yourself up for future, for life post-employment. We ought to see, we ought to use our temporal blessings for eternal benefit. And this is where the application comes for us who have these material goods. We must recognize that God has given us these things for His glory. That's why he says in verse 11, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous man, then how will you commit to trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. 
So money is a test here. How do we use our finances? How are we, use, how are we using the, the finances of this world, the things God has given us to do spiritual work? You have to ask yourself these questions. How do we have split loyalties? Are we trying to live this life for all it's worth without regard to what we have in the future? A couple application questions here at the end. I've entitled this message, Stewardship, the Gateway to Giving, because understanding stewardship properly must happen before we surrender our gifts, our abilities to God, to be used by Him. And unless we give ourselves to God and we're fully convinced that He owns everything, we will never give what God has for us to give. A couple questions here at the end. Number one, who is a steward according to this? Who is a steward? Well, a steward is one who's received responsibility without the ownership. You get that? It's the one who's received the responsibility without the ownership. And we're all stewards. We've received the responsibility of our things, of our talents, of our material wealth, and of our spiritual wealth without the ownership because God owns it. The owner decides how things are done. The steward has some freedom, but ultimately is not the decision-making, does not have decision-making power for how things are accomplished. And God has called us to be stewards. So we should steward that gift for His glory. What must we steward? We must steward any gift that has been given to us by God. Spiritual gift, how has God gifted you spiritually in the church? Material gifts, using material things God has granted to us to glorify Him. And why must we do this? Why must we faithfully steward what God has given to us? Well, because to faithfully steward our gifts from God is to show gratitude. It's to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. You're so great. It's also to recognize His ownership and authority in my life because God will hold us accountable for how we steward. That's the other reason that we must do this. God will hold me accountable for how I manage what He has given to me. And when should we steward? Well, this is obvious. The time for stewardship is right now. The time is coming to a close, as Jesus describes, when the Master returns and keeps us, holds us to account or when the master fires us and we now have a new master, what should we do then? I want to also um, draw your attention here. Are you investing your abilities in physical stewardship? Are you investing your abilities for your own benefit, or are you using them to glorify God and bless others? Are you investing your material resources to ensure the gospel goes out to those who need to hear? There's a physical stewardship all of us need to be a part of. Are you investing what God has given you for His glory? And secondly, there is a spiritual stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We are to be stewards of God's mysteries. We are to be keepers of God's truth. And it's our responsibility to see ministry, a preaching, and spreading the gospel to be the highest of priorities that we have. This is one of the most important things we have. That's why missions is so important. That's why evangelism is so important. That's why preaching and teaching God's Word is so important, because God has entrusted this ministry to us, and we cannot fail in this responsibility. Now, we are not called to be successful in the world's eyes. He says, required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We are to be faithful, consistent, unflappable, doing whatever needs to be done. Colossians 1.25 tells us, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Are you being a good steward of the physical stewardship of God 
end of the spiritual stewardship of God. And lastly, I'd like to ask you a question. Are you managing what God has given you, or are you wasting what God has given you? Are you managing it, or are you wasting time and resources? Are you maximizing your potential to serve the Lord? I wonder how many of us could take a, a quick evaluation of our lives and what gifts we have and what, what abilities we have and what gifts God has given us and say, are we using these really for God's good, for God's glory, and for our good? Because God has these great… God owns what we have. He owns everything, and He has entrusted to us these wonderful things so we can be a part of the ministry He's called us to be a part of. Why don't we close in prayer here, and then we'll, we'll sing a song as we close. Father, I ask that You work in our hearts as we've talked about these things, that we would evaluate our own lives now. That we would see, Lord, where are we when it comes to the, the, the position we find ourselves? Are we being good stewards of what You've given to us? The time for stewardship is now. You have given us a responsibility, and we should steward these things for Your glory. The time is coming to a close when we have the ability to use financial things, to use our physical abilities for your good and, or for your glory, for your kingdom. And there will be a day when we can no longer use these things for you. And Father, I pray that we would maximize the, the time we have here on this earth to, to, for your glory, that we would maximize the gifts you've given us and, and, and use them properly for your good. And Lord, we thank you so much for loving us and giving us these gifts so we can glorify you. I pray that we would worship you with everything we do, with everything we have, as stewards of your grace, as stewards of your gifts. We thank you and praise you.